What are you hungry for? Not looking for a lot of answers here, but that's a, that's a great question. Over the years, I, I've been, uh, you know, kidded sometimes when I open a message or insert into a message where I, I get into a little bit of a discussion about food, and it's always a danger because I know that I might leave your minds at the dinner table when I go on from the illustration, you know, but this is a text where I really have to do this because to appreciate what he's talking about, um, we have to line it up with our, our physical diet. We have to talk about how we eat, how we consume food, um, because that's the metaphor that our Lord uses here in verse 6. And, and this is the question, I think, that uh, the text here really is going to challenge us to personally, every one of us individually, to ask ourselves, what, for what am I really hungry? You know, not saying necessarily what should you be hungry for, but for what are you actually hungry? And if it, if it doesn't come up with the answer that lines up with our text, and that being righteousness, then what does that mean? And how does that need to be addressed? And am I concerned? And if I'm not, why am I not concerned? Think about how physical food works, you know, in my life. Everybody has a different palate, right? Everybody has things that they, they really, you know, if you ask, what's your favorite meal or something like that, you know. But things that, the way God's designed us to, between our nose when we smell things, and then our taste buds, We've, we've all probably experienced where you get an aroma of something and you begin to salivate, right? It's just, just the way it is. Um, for me, one example is, say, fresh baked bread. You know, you walk into home and you can just smell that aroma or fresh baked brownies, you know, it just kind of lingers in the air. Hey, realtors get this. I've often heard realtors say, you know, when you're having an open house, you know, bake brownies or bread or something right before the, the people that are coming to look at your house come in. And it just automatically, you know, puts this sort of longing in people as they, they smell that, you know. And I get that. I, I'm, a, I'm a coffee person, you know. I know many of you are, are coffee people. I just came back from a retreat with pastors. There were 10 of us. And, you know, every one of us, loved coffee we got into some coffee discussions now i'm not a coffee snob but you know a couple of these guys uh one of my dear friends he he's gone really to the nth degree and i don't mind because he brought some of the some of it in the form of gifts for us but um he you know he he started off years ago freshly grinding his coffee every morning no problem with that and then he started you know uh realizing I'm going to, it was telling me this time, he bought green, the, the beans, the coffee beans, green, raw. And so now, once a week, he roasts his own beans at his house. He bought a, his wife gave him a personal roaster for Christmas last year, and he roasts them. And, but to buy them economically, he has to buy them in 65-pound sacks, you know. But he's got a bunch of people in his church that he's gotten into it and stuff like that. But it's okay because he brought us all freshly roasted coffee beans from Ethiopia and gave us a gift, okay? 
And it really was good. I had a cup of it yesterday afternoon, and I was like, wow, this is really nice. But what the thing was is I typically, I have a little grinder that Becky bought me, and, and so I usually uh, grind it in my study, just an easy place for me to plug it in and do it and then, and then put it in a container. And so I notice it most when I'm done grinding and I leave for a little while, and then I come back into my study, and because of the oils of the ground coffee, it's still lingering in the air, and I walk in. It's kind of like I walked into one of these uh, fancy coffee shops. It's just like, <sighs> you know, it's like, God, thank you for making coffee and uh, helping, you know, dumb humans to figure out that all you have to do is roast it and pour water through it, and you get this wonderful drink, you know. And so we appreciate, you know, and I, I think about what Paul says. You know, he's given us all things richly to enjoy, you know. Praise God for taste buds, you know, and, and that's the way that it's designed to work. We ought to have this natural inclination to, to want the right kind of things. Probably many of us have known people that their, their taste buds stopped working properly at some point. Often this happens when people have cancer and they go through a chemotherapy or a radiation or something like that. I still remember Brother Rob Herr and how he was going through treatments. And he just, he had a hard time eating. I'm thinking, that would never be said of me, you know, having a hard time wanting to eat. I have just the opposite problem, you know. But nothing sounded good. Everything tasted metallic to him, you know. I could hear it. I pitied him. I always prayed for him in that regard but you know that god-given mechanism to desire food and want to take in nutrition uh, that was removed because of exigent circumstances in his life you know and, and and we understand that and so for us we are blessed most of us to never have a sense of appetite have urges and say you know i need food uh, we may not be near it at the moment, but we can pretty much get to it pretty quickly. You know, if we're not home, there's drive throughs there's all sorts of things, even just stopping at a Dollar General and grabbing something because we feel a little faint. But do we realize that for a lot of the world, they don't operate that way? And there's a lot of people that have appetite. Their taste buds work the same way, and their stomachs growl. But they can't necessarily satisfy those longings as easily as you and I can. And, you know, for you and I, it's like sometimes you're like, okay, you know, Thanksgiving dinner is coming, and so I'm going to take a long walk beforehand, so I'll have an appetite. I want to be able to enjoy it, you know, when I eat it. You know, for a lot of from world countries, they don't have that problem. They're hungry all the time. And so while we kind of, enjoy an appetite and have that that longing it's only a good thing if it can be satisfied it's only considered a blessing by a person if they can satisfy you don't want an unresolved appetite in your life that's misery but a lot of the world is that way when it comes to physical food you know god laid on brother mike's heart to pick that particular song you know I don't know if he knew what I was preaching this morning or not, but how applicable that, you know, Jesus is the one thing, if I can put it this way, the commodity 
you know, not to trivialize Jesus, but the, the one thing that everybody needs and everybody can have is Jesus. doesn't matter what country or culture you're in. So an appetite can be an unpleasant thing. You know, what, what a pleasure to have an appetite when you know that you will be filled. And so we look at this verse and the promise of this verse. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I want to talk about our spiritual appetite today. First of all, I want us to explore the different aspects of righteousness. He just throws this one word out there. We need to be after righteousness. This is what we're supposed to be pursuing. That's what he means by after it, longing for it. It's in our focus. It's in the crosshairs of our plans, not just at one point in our life, but an ongoing plan in our life. I, I, I need righteousness. So what does he mean by this righteousness? Well, there's different kinds. There's, first of all, there's pronounced righteousness. This is our legal standing before God. Uh, this is what is given to us by Jesus if you're a Christian today. It's what we all lack as we come into the world, and it needs to be taken care of. Otherwise, when it's time for us to leave this world, we're not headed to heaven, we're headed to hell. Because as we come into this world and as we live in this world, we live as criminals before God. We are criminals. Why? Because sin is the transgressing of God's law, and all have sinned and come short of God's glory. So therefore, to use today's terminology, we need to see ourselves as all spiritual criminals. It's just another way of seeing us as sinners, but we're breaking, we're guilty of breaking God's law. I use that word also because of the need to understand the judicial part of our salvation. Because you and I didn't change really our behavior so that Jesus would, God would like us better and give us a place in heaven someday. Because all of our righteousness, all of our effective day-by-day good deeds righteousness, Isaiah tells us are like filthy what? Rags. So we're not doing so hot by ourselves, are we? And so that's where Jesus comes in. Jesus dies in our behalf. He takes our place. And God the Father, being a righteous judge, demands justice and praise God that he's that way. We, we wouldn't want an unjust judge for our Heavenly Father. We would have tyranny. And you know what? Tyranny never works out well. And so if we receive what Christ has already done on our, our behalf, his vicarious atonement, in other words, he atoned or satisfied God's wrath against sin because he vicariously or substitutionarily took our place. Vicarious atonement, great phrase. We need to cherish it because it's the difference of getting into heaven and not getting into heaven. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's no other avenue. And so when we receive Christ, as many as receive him, 
to them he gives the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. God the Father declares us righteous in his Son. So it's not enough just to seek righteousness. You must seek it by the right means. I meet a lot of people that tell, tell me, you know, I'm trying to be a good person, and I think they really mean it. And I think that their efforts bear out that they are a lot better than they might have been, right? You know, they could have been a whole lot nastier. They could have been a lot more dishonest. But because of their human effort, they raised their performance. But the point is, it's still not enough. We still come short of God's expectations and His glory. Some attempt to gain righteousness by doing what God says, His law. You know, I try not to lie. Don't want to bear false witness. Try not to covet. Try to be faithful to my marital vows. You know, don't fall into adultery. However, and here's the point, nobody, nobody ever has or ever will be able to obey the law flawlessly. And Jesus said to break the law in one point is to offend the whole thing. We're lawbreaker. Now, I know the consequences of certain sins are greater than others, such as someone taking another person's life. I mean, that's a horrific thing. As opposed to someone that did not itemize their tax deductions properly and misrepresented their income, which is bearing false witness. And in everybody's minds, they think, well, there's... There's the really egregious, horrific sins over here. And we always talk about mass murderers and stuff like that. And then there's the white-collared sins, right? But we do need to understand that there's not compartments in hell. There's flames. There's torment. And whether we're guilty of one time telling a white lie, as we might like to label it, or whether someone's a serial murderer, still, apart from God's justification through His Son, both types of individuals are going to the same place for all eternity. The Gentiles, by and large, saw that inability in a spirit of utter dependence came by faith, which is the only acceptable way. They understood this, you know, the, the Jews are like, keep the law, keep the law, keep the law. You know, bring the lambs. And, and, a lot of the, and, and most of the things they were doing, God was saying, you ought to do these things, but the problem is you're leaving the other things undone. You're, you're worshiping me outwardly, but not inwardly. I'm reminded of what Paul said in Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 30. He says, what shall we say then that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness, talking about, you know, during the Old Testament period and stuff like that, you just had Canaanites and Hittites and, you know, none of them were following after the one true God. So that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness because now this is happening. You're seeing Gentiles becoming followers of Jesus even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained the law of righteousness. So right there in those two verses, what is he saying? You know, 
Starting out, the Gentiles, they didn't have anything to do with the, the Ten Commandments and following Jehovah God. But now, we're seeing revival. Paul's saying, we're seeing Gentiles, such as the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, such as Lydia and, and people in uh, Iconium and Derby and Corinth and in Rome. And these, many of these, by and large, were non-Jewish people that didn't have the, the background of growing up talking about the one true God. They weren't offering lambs and sacrifices. They had previously been worshiping Aphrodite, Zeus, Nike, all these false gods. They were very lustful in their daily approach, very hedonistic. But they realized at some point, we're sinners and we need a solution. And the gospel came along and Paul preached and others preached about Jesus. And they received Christ and were gloriously saved. Which seems very strange because they didn't have the background. But those people that did have the background, Paul says, these Jewish people that had the oracles of God, they had the Old Testament in their hands, they, they were worshiping the right God, but the problem is they weren't always worshiping the right way in their hearts. And now Jesus has come along, and by and large, most of the Jewish people have rejected him. See, this is the irony, if we could put it that way, of what Paul is pointing out here. And then he goes on to say in verse 32, Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith. Talking about the Jewish people. They didn't have that key attitude, that key approach of trust, dependence, they were offering the sacrifices, they were doing the ceremonies, they were keeping the kosher kitchen, so to speak, but they were just doing the mechanics of it, and there was not a dependence upon God. There wasn't this love and affection for God. But it was, as it were, the works of the law, human works, mechanics. And it doesn't work that way, folks. The plan of God only works if we do it by faith. The people who are just, meaning people who have been justified by God, shall live by what? Faith. And we can be just as guilty of it today in 2020 because we can go through the externals of coming to church, checking off our Bible reading, going down our prayer list, you know, handing out our tracts. But if we don't have a disposition and mental attitude of dependence upon God all along the way, then we're no different than Israel that rejected Jesus Christ in our hearts. So there is a pronounced righteousness, but it comes by us having faith in what God has already done for us. But then there is this practical righteousness also. Pronounced righteousness, legal standing before God, practical righteousness. This is our moral character behavior. Sometimes we tend to talk about personal holiness. This must be true before the first thing, the pronounced righteousness. That has to be pl in place. That has to happen before this can be meaningful. The problem is everybody's trying to be practically right and not do anything about humbly accepting the pronounced righteousness of the Father through Jesus Christ. It's got to be in the right order. If we have been pronounced righteous, we've been justified, then the Bible says we're new creatures. 1 John 3, 7 and 10 says, He that doeth righteousness is 
righteous. Now what he's saying there, let's get this clear. He's not saying you can do good things and therefore get a badge that says you're a righteous person. He's actually saying, when he says, he that doeth righteousness is righteous, he says, a person that is doing righteousness is already, firstly, someone who's been pronounced righteous. He is righteous. That's why you discover him doing righteous things. And many people have gotten this verse wrong on that point. It can't mean the other thing. We know that the Bible tells us it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. So because we're pronounced righteous, we're a new creature in Christ, and as new creatures, we will do righteous things. Whosoever doeth not the righteousness is not of God. It, there will be fruit. By their fruit ye shall know them, Jesus said. And so you cannot have an individual who says, Oh yeah, I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer. And then they go off and they, they live no different than they ever have before. And their heart is no different, not just talking about the externals, but even internally. But I can, hey, here's the date that I walked down and prayed a prayer. Hey, you can spout any kind of words you want in your mouth. You know, that, that's not transforming. The mouth, with the mouth, confession is made. But he also said, but the heart must believe under righteousness. And you and I can't always detect that. How many times I've had people come to me and say, Preacher, you know, I have this person, and I know they got saved when they were just a young child, and they grew up in church, but now they're doing this, this, and this, and how does a Christian do that? And I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. How do you know that they're a Christian? Oh, well, I remember when they stood up and, you know, when they walked the aisle and stuff, you saw them walk an aisle. You may have heard them give a testimony. You may have seen them get dunked in the water baptism. Did you see their heart? Did you see their heart believe to righteousness? How does a person do that? No, you and I can't. Only God can. So there's a, there's a lot of tares out there. There's a lot of goats, as Jesus used the metaphors. People that are there, but not there. When you buy a, a fish from a pet store, do you just care to see the shell of the fish there? Like maybe it's laying on its side on the top of the water? And you say, I want to buy a fish. Well, I'll, I'll give you a deal on this one. No, I don't want that one. Well, there's a fish. Yeah, but I want one that's swimming around. Why do you care about that? Well, if he's not moving around, he's probably dead. I want a live fish. God doesn't want dead professions. New creatures are living creatures. He gives us new life, not just a verbal profession. There is a change. So how do I make that happen? No, you don't make that happen. God makes that happen. You yield to him by faith. And he gives you the new life in him. Secondly, we need to make sure we're having the right balance and perspective. God's children know how to enjoy material things. That's, it's easy for us to do that. Got a car, house, bought furniture, new clothing, whatever it is. And, and there is a, there's a right perspective that 
these things can, are a blessing from God. Now, you know, we can go after these things improperly, but we can have a, a spirit of God, I'm trusting you. And, and God does want to give his children good gifts. We understand that. But the real question is, for what do we really crave? If we're really focused on the material things in life, then I would submit to you our cravings need to be addressed. Kind of talking about, uh, you know, the mindset of trying to eat properly. I remember hearing as a young boy the, the statement or the question, do you live so that you can eat or do you eat so that you can live? There's a big difference in those two things, isn't there? And sometimes people, they, they're just sort of slaves to their taste buds. And we hear about things like comfort food and stuff like that. And sometimes we eat for the wrong reasons at different times or even eat the wrong things at the right times. Okay? And I'm not, I'm not going there primarily, but I'm just saying is we understand that mindset that these God-given drives, because God gave us our taste buds, okay? But they can go awry. They can go unchecked if we're not careful. But we have all other kinds of cravings too, don't we? It's okay to buy things. We need to purchase things. But sometimes people get into sort of a slavishness and an addiction to purchasing things. You know, I've heard stories of people that when QVC came out, that they were just, they couldn't let anything pass by without buying it. And I remember one man telling me that his mother-in-law had a basement filled with QVC boxes, most of which had never been opened, but she just could not bring herself to let that deal pass by. Now, these are extreme examples, but you know what? We're, many of us may be struggling even somewhere in the middle with our cravings of, oh, I got this email, this Black Friday deal. You know, you know, should I buy it or shouldn't I buy it? Well, we need to be praying about those things. But these cravings that we have, whatever it might be. See, life is really a matter of ranking our options. Ranking our options. And, and Jesus will later in Matthew 6, verse 33, say this. But seek ye, and here's, here's the ranking word here. First, right? Hear the ranking there in that word? Seek ye First, does he mean don't seek anything else? No, but as a priority, rank as the top. What? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then what about all these other things? They'll be added unto you. It's okay for them to come along. It's okay for you to have that meal. It's okay for you to have the, some of those purchases. It's okay for you to have a, a brand new car, perhaps. And there's a, there's a lot of individual leading by the Spirit of God in His providence in some of these decisions. But we don't want to say, oh, it's always wicked to go out and buy a brand new car or even to have a sports car, perhaps, or a convertible or whatever, you know. No, we don't need to think that way. I think it's great. Job, when he was applauded by God and by saying, have you considered my servant Job? He was a very wealthy man. We know that because of all the stuff that God allowed Satan to take away from him. But he was righteous while he had those things. 
Abraham was a very wealthy man, and he was the friend of God. So it's, it's, it's okay to enjoy life, but it is an issue of balance and perspective of what we are after, craving, pursuing. There may be times that an activity might be God's best for you, and another time that that very same activity would be a detour from God's will. Well, God, you said okay here, so it must be okay now. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Or that because you see it in someone else's life, you know, you let the Joneses do this, so it must be okay for me to do this. Not necessarily. We know that money is not intrinsically wrong. How many people misquote the Bible and say money is the root of all evil? The Bible doesn't say that. It says a very important word in front of that. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Hear that? It's where our affections are, where our mindset is. So we need to have a right balance in our perspective with regard to what we are after. There should be a sense of saying, Lord, I'm enjoying these things, but if the day comes that my net worth changes, if the government begins to tax me differently, if I don't have the same kind of discretionary income, if I'm not, if I don't have, if my retirement plummets, as long as I have Jesus, trust you. I don't necessarily have to be in the same place materially speaking, that I am now. Thirdly, we need to cultivate, be cultivating a wholesome appetite. It doesn't just automatically happen. There are things that we have to choose to do and not to do. The question is, why would a Christian not have a craving for righteousness? Born again, why don't I just automatically want all the right things? since I got saved, and why do I not automatically despise all the things that I shouldn't have? And I, as I disciple new Christians, this comes up quite a bit. And I've been walking with the Lord, and I, but I'm still drawn back into this fleshly appetite. I thought that once I got saved, that that would just disappear. And I'm like, well, you still have an unredeemed flesh. Read Romans 7. And you'll find a buddy in Paul that will just tell you all about how that works. I said, but there is victory. We are more than conquerors, even though those appetites don't just vanish. Again, there is a situation where we can have available to us all the right stuff. But are we really taking it into ourselves? Consider an allegory. Not a true story. But imagine a man being found dead from dehydration. He didn't drown. He died of dehydration while he was floating in the middle of a fresh water reservoir. Have you heard that in the news? The man found dead. His cause of death was dehydration. Other than that, he was perfectly fine. No broken limbs or anything like that. But he was found adrift. After in the middle of a freshwater reservoir, and he died of dehydration. Anybody's signals going off at that kind of news story? It would mine. You would think, wait a minute. The problem here, how could that happen? 
Well, guess what? He was in the midst of the water, but the water wasn't in the midst of him. Here's the allegory. So are many people that are amid Christianity. We call Christianity the freshwater reservoir. And there, there's people that are on rafts, if you would. But they're still dying. Why? Because while they're amid Christianity, they have not Christ in them, the living water. And there are people who are in good churches. There are people that are in good Christian families. And, and the water is all around them. Jesus is all around them. But if you don't drink, if you don't take Him, you will die a spiritual death. And it will be just as baffling to people. More so, right? Like, how could they not be saved? They've heard over and over again the grace of God and Jesus Christ. And it's unlikely that this story would ever happen, that a man would actually be found dead on a raft in a freshwater reservoir. But unfortunately, folks, it is all the norm that people who are surrounded with the message of the gospel and yet die and go out into eternity without Christ. The answer has to be their pride, their arrogance, their unwillingness to yield. But Romans 8.10 tells us, and if Christ be in you, boy, you could circle that word in in your Bibles because that's the key word, right? If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. You know, this, this is why you're still having those wrong appetites. I, I am saved and Christ is in me, but I'm still walking about in an unredeemed body that has the wrong wants. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. This is what Paul's coming off of as he is just finished in Romans 7 talking about the things that I would do. You know, I don't do them. I know they're right, but I don't just naturally do them. And the things that I know I shouldn't do, I just naturally fall into. And I do those things. And it's you know, drives me nuts, Paul's saying. But this is the key. While that's going on, we need to make sure Christ is in us. Because my body, my flesh is not going to help me. But the Spirit of God that is in me, He will help me. So there is a battle. And it will take us all the way till Christ returns or until we go to be with Him through the grave. Some people, when it comes back to physical food, what we put in our mouths, some of us have a taste for things like greasy food. I'll be the first to admit. Sometimes... You know, what sounds the most appealing is a, a very oily, crispy potato chip, right? Or fried egg or something. Sometimes we want something that is salty. Sometimes we want something that's sugary, right? And sometimes what the body wants, what our taste buds are craving, are not healthy options, and as people indulge their fleshly appetites, the less appealing the right things are. There has to become a place where, you know, and often it's when the doctor has that little talk with you, right? Uh, Mr. Smith, <laughs> you know, uh, you probably need to adjust your eating habits a little bit, checking your blood pressure here. We've done some blood work. 
you know, your triglycerides are a little concerned. So tell me a little bit about how you eat, okay? And then it comes, you know, what you need to get rid of in your pantry, the stuff you need to be eating, the carrot sticks, the celery sticks, the right kind of oils, not the bad kind of oils, all that stuff. And you're sitting there and you just feel like you could climb under the chair, right? You know, might as well just cut my throat now. I don't think I can live that way. Well, you know, you can. And many people have. I've watched people who have, with regard to physical food, that I thought they'll never be able to handle this. But when the urgency in the mind became strong enough and the truth overwhelmed them, they began to discipline themselves in the path of what was right. And guess what? It happens that way with how we live our lives, spiritually speaking, too. We may have some things that appeal to us with our eyes, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And some people are thinking, I could never give up that television show. I could never give up that kind of genre of reading material. I could never give up this kind of music. Because honestly, a lot of those things have an addictive nature to them. It has cultivated certain... But in our minds, there's something about the Spirit of God being grieved, and we sense it. But there's this, this back-and-forth struggle. But if instead we replace it with the right things, Christ-honoring music, good, wholesome reading material, visual stimulation and shows that are, are honoring to God, fill up our life with so much of, of the good fiber of God's Word. It would be surprising how our taste buds spiritually will begin to change. And it does happen, folks. I've seen it over and over again. So much of what entertains us may be actually perverting our taste for holiness. The content doesn't have to be immoral content. The level of what piques our interest has greatly escalated with the advances of technology, right? It's so easy with what we carry around in our purses and our pockets to have things coming at us that aren't always wholesome and sometimes pull us in our flesh rather than build us up in our spirit, right? I'll admit it. I have to be very careful and I often didn't have the victory in some area as far as, you know, did I really just spend that amount of time doing that? We need to be mindful of the greater priority. It is sometimes the sensational things are becoming the greater priority. What reaches out to our senses. There was a study done a few years back between 92 and 2002 and they were talking about the impact of social media and media and screens and all this stuff and just in 10 years from 92 to 2002 the percentage of 18 to 24 year olds who do unrequired reading in other words just sit down and read something because they choose to dropped by 12 percent people aren't just picking up and reading which is a very good discipline to have 
and now they were saying it's down to about 52% in that age group. I can only imagine how much lower it's gotten than that. And we have to say, well, what difference does that make what you're talking about, preacher? Well, I'm pretty sure if we want to hear God's truth, reading's going to be highly involved in it. Whether you do it, read it here, read it here, it's still reading. And a lot of times we don't have the discipline because it doesn't just hit our senses. It doesn't give, give us that, that sense of immediate gratification. And there's a discipline, just like in the physical world of what we put in our mouth, to eat the right thing, there is a discipline to putting the right things here spiritually, right? Fourthly, the object of our appetite really needs to be Jesus himself. Psalm 107.9, he satisfieth the longing of the soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness. He, not the church of him, not the preaching of him, but you notice it's, it's him himself. And you know what? You can come to a good church. You can do a lot of wonderful things. But if you don't have an intimate relationship with Jesus, and you can say, Hallelujah, I have found him whom my soul so long hath craved. Psalm 42.1 as the heart, as the deer panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Do we have that level of appetite for God in our lives? Jesus taught the woman of Cana that any that would drink of his water will never thirst, but that is only fulfilled if we keep on drinking. That is not a problem because when we drink of Jesus, we meet the need of the moment. We get him, right? We're taking inside of us the actual spring. Jesus is that freshwater spring. He becomes that spring within us. This is what he meant in verse 14 of John 4 when he said that he would be in that kind of person a well. And I'm sure this left the woman kind of dazed and a lot of people that read that to this point. But you really do have to have Jesus and appreciate him. And then you say, well, what about my impact on others? Well, later in verse 38, he says, and then out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. We become channels of blessings. But you can't give others the water to drink if it isn't first coming dynamically out of you in the person of Jesus Christ. Fifthly, the progression of delightful difference. Not all of you have heard the other messages in this series, but let's just glance back at verse 3, where it talks about the poor in spirit. Because I think there is a progression that gets us to where we are now about hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And it, I, I believe that it wasn't just randomly put, but as I read this, I see that one tends to lead to the other, and all of these are prerequisites to this, this spiritual hunger. For instance, he talks about being poor in the Spirit. If I could just summarize that, it means acknowledging your utter spiritual bankruptcy before God. There's nothing good in me but Jesus. And if we don't daily think that way, we'll never get off to the next point. We start with that. 
You will never hunger for Jesus as you should if you still think of yourself as a pretty good person by yourself. But you will long for Jesus when you realize how inept you are to satisfy yourself. Secondly, he talks about they that mourn, they'll be comforted. This is having remorse over that depravity that you see in yourself. I'm a pretty hopeless cause, and it really bothers me. I, I have a, a certain grief apart from what Jesus has done to me. And then thirdly, he goes on to talk about the idea of the meek. Do we have a, a mindset? Do we, are we mindful of our lack so that we respond to others in humility and with gentility? That's what meekness is all about. I mean, who am I to come across as having all the answers? Who am I to come across as saying, you know, you should fall in line with me? No, all three of these things are building up to the place where you say, you know, if those things are in you, then guess what? The presence of those qualities allow a natural appetite of our new spirit to crave godly things. And you will never be here hungering and thirsting after righteousness if those other things aren't already true inside of you as well. So go back and make sure the prerequisites are met. Go back and make sure that that's happening in your life. How is your appetite today? How do you find yourself as you read that verse? You find there's a genuineness where you've, you enjoy this life, but there's something that sets way above everything else that you might enjoy of, but I can't go without God. I can't go without a life that's basically wrapped up in Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. And the question is, are you there? For what are you hungry today? May God work in our hearts. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Help us to not fill up our minds, our hearts, with all that the world is dishing up. Lord, help us to save room for what you are serving up. Lord, help us to be honest in our assessment of self and realize if, if we don't have the craving, if we don't have the appetite, if we're not hungering after you, your ways, Lord, that we would take a step back and say, so what is, my, what are my taste buds spiritually geared toward? And am I willing to, in faith, Start making the choices that represent what God is honored with, what God wants to give me pleasure in, and not believe the lie that only the world can satisfy, or I can't live without somehow accepting a little bit of this into my life. Lord, help us to have the courage and faith to expel and to remove those things in our life that we personally know to be interfering with our spiritual appetite. Help us to be ravenous for righteousness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.